Hello, I'm Edith Hall. This is my Gresham Great Thinkers Lecture on Aristotle. Aristotle is arguably the most influential intellectual who ever lived. And I say intellectual rather than philosopher because he contributed to so many disciplines other than philosophy, including what we call sciences, such as physics, zoology, and art-related endeavours such as literary criticism. But despite the sheer range of his investigations, there is a coherent method and a system underlying all of them. And it has its own terminology, much of which he created almost from scratch. In a Gresham lecture two years ago, I described Aristotle's life, his 20 years spent studying at Plato's Academy, his travels in Turkey and Lesbos, his tutoring of the teenaged Alexander, all of that before he became the Great, and his university at Athens, the Lyceum. This was the first institution to combine teaching at a range of levels, from public lectures to cutting-edge specialised research, all across the disciplinary spectrum. The Lyceum also housed his personal library, which later became the model behind the famous Ptolemaic Library of Alexandria. Aristotle founded the Lyceum when he was nearly 50, and he died not much more than a decade later after being driven out of Athens by politicians who were suspicious of his association with Kings Philip II and Alexander III, the Great of Macedon. But in that last part of his life, he produced what scholars think are the majority of the 200 or more treatises attributed to him, and around 30 of those have survived to be read today. In his metaphysics, he asks, why did humans invent philosophy? Human beings now, and when they began to do philosophy, do so, he says, because of their sense of wonder. At first, they wondered about the strange things lying in front of them, but then, progressing by small steps, they asked questions about greater things too, like what happens to the moon and everything to do with the sun and the stars and the beginning of the universe. Humans found aspects of their existence inexplicable, he says, and so they began to seek explanations to dispel the mysteries. He himself divided his works into three big branches of learning, which he called epistemi. The first branch was theoretical. It encompassed intellectual work done solely with the aim in mind of expanding knowledge. And that included first philosophy or metaphysics, mathematics, and natural philosophy or physics. And that in turn embraces biology, botany, zoology, astronomy, and probably psychology. His favorite theoretical areas included time, motion, place, the God's role in the universe, and causal explanation of phenomena. The second branch was practical. The practical sciences asks what we do, how we should act as individuals and communities. And Aristotle's famous works on ethics and politics fall into this category. The third branch, though, was productive. And this discuss covers discussions of the types of knowledge or craft which generates useful skills in life, such as medical law, rhetoric, art and architecture, shipbuilding, navigation, equestrian science, theatre and music. The second half of this lecture will look at those branches of knowledge, but the first examines the intellectual tools and methods he developed and used so distinctively in all of them. 
appearance, puzzles and opinions. Aristotle always starts from the assumption that we can normally rely on our sense perceptions and ability to understand what we perceive with them, our powers of cognition. And this already distinguishes him from his teacher Plato, who was convinced that sense perceptions were possibly deceptive. Aristotle believed that the material world around us that we can perceive through our senses is real and really deserves our wholehearted attention without wasting too much time on sceptical doubts that it exists in the first place. And regardless of what area he's investigating, he starts with what he can observe, the appearances, which he called ta phenomena, the phenomena. And he identified puzzling aspects of these phenomena, which he needed to have explained. And these were called aporii, and that means places from which no clear path of exit is apparent. So if we're going to begin understanding the puzzling aspects of phenomena, what we have to do is list the opinions that have been expressed about them before, the endoxa. Those included both scholarly and widely held views and very common sense general views of all mankind. So whatever we're studying, we need to identify and set out the things that appear to be the case, the phenomena. Some of these things will as uh, aspects will baffle us, and we need to identify those as our porii, and then we have to collect the endoxa, the plausible explanations traditionally offered. Endoxa, he defines as those opinions accepted by everyone, or by the majority, or by the wise, and amongst the wise, by most or all of them, those who are the most notable and have the highest reputation. A clear example is in his treatment in the Nicomachean Ethics of the aporia in human behaviour that we're sometimes weak-willed. We may know what we should do or should not do, but actually not be able to implement it. And he calls this acrasia, a lack of blending in the soul. And at this point, he lays out his fundamental approach. As in other matters, we must set out the appearances, the phenomena, identify the puzzles they entail, this is the way in which we need to prove the received opinions, the endoxa, about these sorts of experiences. If the phenomena prove to be deceptive, then we need to reformulate them, even though Aristotle has a considerable trust in sense perceptions of reality, unlike Plato. And if the endoxa contradict one another, some or all will need to be discarded if the scientific work of reasoning makes it necessary. A clear illustration is where he's discussing time in the physics. This phenomenon, what appears to us, is that time exists or at least passes. But when we try to define it, we become bewildered. And to address this aporia, we first need to collect the endox of what things have been said about time by previous thinkers. He sets out the first aporia. Does time exist and if so, how? Now, one opinion is that time is the totality of past, present and future. But another opinion says that only the present exists, the past and future don't. If we respond that time is the sum of what exists, what currently exists, what existed, what will exist, we have a necessary but not a sufficient definition. Plenty of other things existed and will exist too. And there's another objection that can be made. The notion of the present is problematic. The 
present must either remain the same forever or be constantly changing. If it remains identical, then the present moment would be identical to the present 10,000 years ago, which is obviously silly. But if it's in a constant state of change, then it's never the same, in which case a present in the past must have come into existence and then out of existence. So the endoxer give Aristotle a staircase up which to climb in search of a higher and more satisfactory analysis and explanation. Logic. Aristotle's advanced logic can also be seen at work across everything he wrote. He doesn't include it as a separate discipline within that trifold division of the branches of knowledge, theoretical, practical and productive, because logic belongs to all of them. And his work is unified by a system of logic, even though he didn't actually use the word, and valid inference. And that underpins all his argumentation. In his framework, although he's not actually explicit about it, logic doesn't belong to anyone's science, but formulates the principles of correct argumentation suitable to all areas of inquiry and shared by them all. He draws up principles of adequate inference and explores common ways in which people reason falsely. The treatises on logic and modes of argumentation have been transmitted under a group name, the organon, and that just means the, the tool, the organ, although that wasn't Aristotle's terminology either. But it is an appropriate metaphor for thinking about logic as an instrument applicable across all human reasoning, reasoning and knowledge acquisition. The Organon has been seminal in the evolution of philosophy and science and mathematics. He wasn't content with using arguments. He thought that the reasons that we use for supporting or refuting theories are very complicated and require analysis in their own right. He saw that a discipline was needed which studied not a content, so plants in botany or human behaviour in ethics, but the form taken by the arguments we use when we apply reason. And he was a pioneer in this, as he well knew. He said, in the case of rhetoric, there were many old writings on which to draw, but in the case of logic, we had absolutely nothing at all to say until we'd spent much time in laborious research. In the first treatise, which is long and dense, he prepares for his whole system of argumentation by, by identifying 10 types of bits or categories of language which can be used to classify all the things that exist. Substance, magnitude, quality, relation, place, time, condition, action and passion. On their own, uh, they are neither true nor false. It's only in combination that they become true or false. So substance, usia is, say, a woman, a horse, Socrates or a car. Magnitude is a number like three or a size. Quality is white, grammatical or bad. Relationships, smaller. Place, the Lyceum, when, 10 minutes ago. Position, sitting. State or condition because of what, of what it has. So shod or inlaid. Action, smiles, and then passion, which actually means just the passive thing, to be smiled at. So we could make a sentence using all tens, such as the woman, five foot seven, an academic, mother of Sarah and Georgia, at Gresham College today, 
is standing as she lectures and is recorded. Now, Aristotle implies that these 10 categories are comprehensive. He doesn't think there are any others and also irreducible. No one category can be eliminated in favour of another. We need all these 10 categories to think logically, but we don't need any additional ones. Of course, we can see that um, in practice there are potential problems with several of these categories. The term aslant, for example, that could be thought to be an obvious case of number seven, position. But you could argue that it needs something to be aslant in relation to a flat floor, for example, or a perpendicular wall. And that would make it a number four. Or take woman. A structuralist linguist will say that that word too doesn't just describe a substance, but it actually requires something to be in relation to the concept of a man in order to have meaning. But that said, Aristotle's categories represented a huge step forward in the systemization of Greek argumentation. The second treatise on interpretation explores further issues in the philosophy of language including categories relating to grammar, so nouns, names, verbs, prepositions. He also addresses the problem of future contingents. Now, this is a future which could be brought into effect if certain circumstances applied, but remains only possible. It may or may not be fulfilled. To illustrate what he means, he offers his celebrated paradox of the sea battle. Take the statement, tomorrow a sea battle will take place. Is this a true or false statement? It must be one or the other, but we cannot know until tomorrow whether it was true at the time it was uttered. So that this, show that some, this shows that some things are contingent. The future will depend on decisions we take. How we deliberate will determine the truth or falsity of the statement at the time it was made. An important element in Aristotle's thought is analysed in the prior analytics and that is the syllogism. Syllogisms are arguments used to reason and deduce principles and ideas. After Aristotle, they were used by all medieval philosophers and they were a fundamental part of philosophy until very recent times. The simplest but most important forms of argument are simply statements or premises. From putting two statements together, we can deduce or infer a third which constitutes a conclusion or a truth. A syllogism in Greek just means a process of putting arguments together. And here is a successful syllogism. Premise one, all philosophers are human. Two, Aristotle is a philosopher. Conclusion, therefore Aristotle is a human. Aristotle was the first to see this, this could actually be written out in a universal form. All philosophers X are human Y. Aristotle Z is a philosopher X, therefore Aristotle Z is also a human Y. Now, most syllogisms fall into certain basic categories, depending on the form taken by the premise and the modifying adjectives. So you can have all philosophers or some philosophers, for example. A modifier can be negative. No philosophers. Aristotle realised that rather more complicated syllogisms involve those negative statements. So one premise one, Aristotle and Theophrastus are not both at the Lyceum today. Two, Theophrastus is at the Lyceum today. Conclusion, therefore 
Aristotle is not at the Lyceum today. If both premises are true, the conclusion is certain to be true. If the premises are correct, a valid and useful conclusion can be drawn. But the devil with formal logic is in the detail. By the age of seven, most children can spot a faulty illogical conclusion, as in this. One, all Britons are human. Two, some humans like bananas. Conclusion, therefore, all Britons like bananas. If only some humans like bananas, then we cannot assume that all Britons do. The conclusion does not follow. It is a known sequitur. We would need more information in order to derive that conclusion. But it'll take most children much longer to learn to question a premise that's presented to them. So, premise one, Aristotle is a philosopher. Premise two, all philosophers are pedants. Conclusion, therefore, Aristotle is a pedant. The first premise here is indisputable. And even the conclusion derives logically from the premises if you accept them. But the problem lies in the second premise. Experienced po philosophers, politicians and lawyers all know that the clever place to hide a logical problem or a tendentious viewpoint is in that second premise. The vulnerable point is always in the middle of the syllogism <laughs> because if the listener has accepted our first premise, they've put in the frame of mind which regards you as plausible and makes them much more willing to accept your second. Most arguments relying on racial or other discriminatory prejudice house an incorrect statement, often a value judgment or generalisation in their second premise. All Irish people are lazy, all redheads have a temper, no woman can park a car. Now, one of the problems facing Aristotle in his extraordinary project of classifying modes of logical argumentation was how very few endoxa were available to him. He apologised to his students for any defects that might arise from this. Once you've surveyed our work, he wrote, if it seems to you that our system has developed adequately in comparison with other treatments arising from the tradition to date, bearing in mind how things were at the beginning of our inquiry, it falls to you, our students, to be indulgent with respect to any omissions in our system and to feel a great debt of gratitude for the discoveries that it contains. Now, although logic studies have now moved far beyond the limits of Aristotle's Organon, it's impossible to overstate his achievement. Immanuel Kant, who disagreed with Aristotle on countless issues, wrote that since earliest times, logic has travelled a secure course, can be seen from the fact that since the time of Aristotle, it hasn't had to go a single step backwards. What is further remarkable about logic is that until now, it's also been unable to take a single step forward. And therefore, it seems to all appearances to be finished and complete. Explanatory adequacy via the four causes. In his physics, Aristotle gives an account of his theory that an adequate explanation of most things can be arrived at by identifying his four causes or causes. They allow us to think about the relationship between matter or content and form, his theory of hylomorphism. Material things are made out of matter, which will persist after form changes. So 
a statue is made of bronze or stone. And while the statue may cease to be, the bronze or stone substance will not. So bronze is the material cause. But the statue also has a form or a pattern which makes it essentially what it is, the formal cause. It also has someone who caused the change in the matter, the introduction of the new form, the agent. And in the case of the statue, it's going to be a sculptor. So he or she is the efficient cause. And there's one more cause, the purpose it will serve, the reason why it's created, a final end or telos. A statue is created to stand in a temple in honour of a god. And Aristotle thinks if we've identified the four causes of anything, we have a reasonably adequate explanation of it. The most difficult and important of these four causes is the final one. It's what Aristotle's central concept of teleology is founded on. It's also fundamental to his critique of Plato's theory of the eternal forms. He says that theory is inadequate because it cannot explain change, generation and passing away. There must be an efficient cause which sets in motion the process by which something achieves its potential, its dunamis, the final purpose or telos. So a pile of bricks has the potential to become a building, but needs a builder to do so. The teleology system is also crucial to Aristotle's study of living organisms, both human beings and other animals. Our different body parts have different final causes. The heart doesn't serve the same purpose as teeth. But each individual, in each individual human and animal also has a final cause, which if it is to grow into the fully adult fortune of themselves, it needs to achieve. But his account is not anthropocentric, and it also um, assumes that there isn't anything outside the world that is interfering with it. Teleology for Aristotle is immanent in nature, doesn't privilege humans over other animals, except as far as we have certain potentials to deliberate, for example, that others don't. So these are amongst the main reasons why Aristotle is a heroic figure for those who are advancing green politics and asking for a revolution in the way we think about other organisms, both plants and animals. And he's also a hero for those who take a scientific rather than religious view of the world. So the first branch of knowledge is theoretical science. His basic premise about the physical universe is that all terrestrial bodies are composed of four elements, earth, air, fire and water. He says that matter is infinitely divisible, the universe is full, there is no vacuum in nature, the world is eternal, the sun, which has always revolved, he says, as it does at present, will ever continue to do so, and finally, that the generations of men succeed each other without having had a beginning or foreseeing an end. But everything in earth changes, organic things perish, but the bits they're constituted of do not pass away. They simply move so that the material mass of the world remains whole. He thinks the dry land and the sea are constantly changing under the action of rivers. And he saw evidence in the discovery of seashells far inland that the sea had changed. And he thinks these changes, plus war, famine, earthquake, fires and plagues, mean that human civilizations are sporadically almost wiped out. Against this background, he described numerous species in a comparative way, where the classifications depend on their organs and functions. 
He seems to have used rudimentary spreadsheets to help him collate the vast masses of information he collected. Although other peripatetics, especially his closest friend and colleague Theophrastus, specialised in botany, Aristotle was fascinated by animals and he's universally regarded as the father of zoology. It was on Theophrastus' island of Lesbos that the two of them seem to have started working on these two disciplines. Aristotle's history of animals is a remarkable read. The distinctions it draws, constantly grouping and regrouping animals into fundamental categories, still underpin zoology today. Animals differ in their mode of living, their action. Some live on land, some others in water, some breathe water, others air. Of aquatic animals, some inhabit the sea, others the rivers, the lakes or marshes. Of those which live in the sea, some are pelagic, others littoral and others inhabit rocks. We know no animal, says Aristotle, that flies only as the fish only swims. For those with membranous wings walk and even bats have feet. Many species both walk and swim, including humans. Animals also differ in their habits. Some are gregarious, others solitary. Some obey a leader, bees, others act independently. Some feed on flesh, others on fruits, others on both. Some have homes, others live in the open air. Some like snakes burrow in the earth, others like horses live above the ground. Some animals seek their food at night, others at day. Some are tame, others wild. Some utter sounds like birds, others are mute, some sing. But they all sing or cry, he thinks, at mating time. By drawing all these distinctions, he arrives at the human being, who is an advanced animal who has one or two things other animals don't. Memory, teachability, the ability to reflect, to deliberate and recollect deliberately. His major categories were repeatedly subdivided. Red-blooded animals, that's quadrupeds including animals, serpents, birds, fish and cetacea, and white-blooded animals, testacea, crustacea, mollusks and insects. His quadrupeds include the mammals and the quadrupedal reptiles. And then he divides them into those which are viviparous and those which are oviparous eggs. Some are covered with hair, the latter with scales. Serpents are also scaly and except for the viper, oviparous. Yet all viviparous animals are not hairy. There are some who bring forth their young alive. In the great family of viviparous quadrupeds, he says, there are many species or genera. Man, the lion, the stag and the dog. And he mentions as an example of a natural genus, those which have a mane like the horse, the ass, the mule and the wild ass of Syria. There are several distinct species, but together constitute a genus or families. And the history of animals leads us into Aristotle's ethics and politics, his practical sciences, because it's, these are simultaneously an exposition of what it means to be human. Humans are just animals, but with distinctive characteristics. But there are a few areas in which humans um, are not superior to animals. There are things that animals can do that humans can't. Uh, when describing animals with visible outer ears, he claims that man is the only one who cannot move this organ. Now, there are in fact some pe people, admittedly a very few, who can wiggle their ears. 
but clearly Aristotle wasn't one of them. He also knows that in some animals, most of the senses are far more highly developed than in man, such as a sense of smell in a dog. He recommends kindness to animals, just as in humans, where he knows that poverty is the direct cause of social conflict. He insists that aggression in animals is linked to scarcity of resources, especially food. He has recommendations on how to deal with male elephants at mating season. And he says that abundance of food tames them. Most of all, he revels in interaction and cooperation between humans and animals. He describes the Athenian mule who lived to the age of 80 at the time when the Parthenon was being built. That was back in the 430s BCE. But because of its great age, this mule was retired and no longer required to work. But it still carried on turning up every day to drag burdens and encourage the other mules. In consequence, says Aristotle with approval, a public decree was passed forbidding any baker driving the creature away from his bread tray. He also has an inkling of the superior intelligence of the dolphin. He tells of a shoal which entered a harbour in Caria, that's southwest Turkey, and remained there until a fisherman set free a dolphin from the community which he caught in his net. He regarded female red deer as highly intelligent because he'd noticed that they bring their fawns close to the side of public roads. The wild animals who prey on young deer are then deterred from attacking them. That's because of fear of the humans passing by. He tells of the cooperation between wolves and fishermen in the far northeastern Black Sea region by the Sea of Azov. Provided the fishermen divide their spoils with the wolves, all is well. But if they don't give the wolves fish, the wolves tear their nets in pieces as they lie drying on the shore. The second branch of knowledge is practical knowledge. The method of consulting endoxer, according to Aristotle, leads to the realisation that in many matters, no unitary or univocal account can be identified. In fact, the world tends to produce multivocal explanations rather than univocal ones, like Plato's univocal theory of the forms. A good example is Socrates' view, there's only one kind of excellence, arete common to all excellent people, regardless of whether they're male, female, adult, ch child, slave or free. Aristotle is concerned that the idea of excellence or universal goodness raises serious aporiae. Goodness must be different in different cases, rather than, as Plato had said, something universal, common to all, good things and single. This observation has really important consequences in Aristotle's ethics, where the variety and particularity of human experience are fundamental and solutions need to be tailored to individual cases in all their granular detail. Goodness, he says, is different in different cases. He then makes a kind of apology. We had perhaps better consider the universal good, he writes, and run through the puzzles concerning what is meant by it, even though this sort of investigation is rather unwelcome to us because those who introduced the forms are friends of ours. Yet presumably it would be better to destroy even what is close to us as something necessary for preserving the truth, and all, all the more so given that we are philosophers. 
For though we love them both, Socrates and Plato, piety bids us to honour the truth before our friends. Aristotle's notion of excellence is central to his two great works on practical knowledge, his Nicomachean ethics and his politics. Humans have a potential to lead, lead good lives, which will allow them to achieve their telos of happiness or eudaimonia. And that is best sought by living in accordance with reason, identifying one's virtues and vices, and working to become the worst, best possible version of yourself. The meaning of eudaimonia is controversial. It can also be translated as flourishing or, or living in a good way. For Aristotle, it means realising our potential best natures by actualising our human capacities to the highest degree. But what are those? It's not that humans are just simply alive in the sense of nutrition and growth, which is common to plants even. It's not life as a perceptive being, because that's also common to other animals. What remains, therefore, for humans is the life of action belonging to the kind of soul that has reason. His account of human happiness puts centre stage the exercise of reason, whether practical or theoretical. Happiness for Aristotle is more of a verb, an activity, than a state permanently achieved. It's rational activity executed excellently, and that forms the basis of virtue ethics. In an impressive piece of argumentation or dialectic, Aristotle shows that humans are happier when they're doing good things than doing bad ones. The path to happiness comes through taking on a life's project of becoming a great-souled person, of being magnanimous. The great-souled person is the one almost all of us actually fundamentally aspire to be. He doesn't court danger for its own sake, but is prepared to sacrifice his life for an important cause. He prefers helping other people to asking for assistance himself. He's never obsequious to the rich and powerful and he's always courteous even to the most humble folk. He is open both in love and hate because only a person who's afraid of what other people think of him needs to conceal his true feelings. He avoids gossip because it's usually negative. He rarely criticises other people even his enemies, unless it's in an appropriate context, like a law court. But equally, he avoids excessively lavish praise. In short, being magnanimous means being quietly courageous, self-sufficient, non-sycophantic, polite, discreet and candid. And that's a role model everyone can adopt with enthusiasm and sincerity. Just because it was written down more than 23 centuries ago doesn't make it any less inspiring. The practical ethical philosopher needs therefore to analyse what doing good means in respect of all the human characteristic virtues and vices, such as courage, self-control, civility and generosity. For Aristotle, character traits, emotions and instincts are almost all acceptable, indeed necessary to a healthy psyche provided they're present in the right amounts, and he calls the right amount the middle or mean, the meson. He never actually used the term golden mean. Anger, for example, is essential to a healthy personality, and someone who never feels anger is not always going to do the right thing and therefore will not achieve happiness. If your child is bullied at school, 
and you do not get angry, you won't take them to the head teacher's office to ask for something to be done. Yet too much anger is also a shortcoming or a defect, a defect, a vice. It's always a question of the right amount at the right time. And in his Eudemian ethics, Aristotle draws up a chart to help us analyse a series of virtues with their correlative vices if they're in excess or deficiency. And here are some of them. Excessive, mean deficient. So, insolence, respectfulness, shyness. Avarice, financial integrity, gullibility. Boastfulness, truthfulness, false modesty, deviousness, prudence, gullibility. This matters in our collective lives outside the household too. At the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, he says that political theory is a continuation of his ethical theory. Ethics analyzes the best form of human life for an individual and political theory characterizes the forms of social organization best suited to its realization. The book in which he lays out his views on how collective happiness might best be pursued in the city-state, the polis, where humans as political animals, that is community-dwelling animals, is his famous politics. Fundamental here are his famous classification of the different types of constitution and assessment of which is most likely to make the attainment of collective happiness possible. That's monarchy, tyranny, oligarchy, and democracy. He did believe that democracy was the best system if it was working, but he said that required a sterling effort with state education. Otherwise, it was likely to become a deviant democracy. That meant it was vulnerable to turning into a tyranny. The third part, branch of knowledge is productive. So what did Aristotle say about productive knowledge? His two surviving books on this deal with speech-making and writing tragedy, respectively. He broke new ground by insisting that rhetoric, like logic, is actually a neutral skill which can be used for good or evil. Rhetoric, in fact, is essential for any individual pursuing happiness. It's absurd, he says, to hold that a person should be ashamed of an inability to defend himself with his limbs, but not ashamed of an inability to defend themselves with speech and reason for the use of rational speech is more distinctive of a human being than the use of his limbs. And he compared the individual trained in rhetoric with his favorite figure of the medical practitioner. His father was a doctor. The consummate medic uses his complete repertoire of techniques for healing, even though he cannot cure every single patient. The rhetorician similarly needs to have a total understanding of all the techniques available and how to implement them, even though he may not always succeed in persuading everybody of his case. Aristotle's theory of persuasion was developed integrally, integrally with the rest of his works. Emotions and thought underlie his whole virtue ethics, but they're also integral to his advice on persuasion. Some of his most interesting empirical observations on cognition through speech, that's how people actually take in information delivered in words also occur in the rhetoric. His entire theory is built on the relationship between the communicator and the audience and how emotions and language create that relationship. 
Aristotle is not taken in by rhetorical tricks. He offers amusing examples of how speakers put a, a negative or a positive spin. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Aristotle says you can call Orestes, who killed his mother Clytemnestra, in revenge for her killing of his father. You can actually call her uh, um, Orestes either a father avenger or a mother murderer, depending on whether you want your audience to sympathise with him or loathe him. Aristotle also remarks that in his day, robbers had begun to talk themselves up by describing themselves as purveyors. And the poet Simonides, he says, who was asked to write an ode celebrating a victory at one of the athletic contests, actually in the race for mules, that poet Simonides, he declined because he said it was impossible to write an ode, an elevated verse genre on such an undignified animal. But when the customer offered him enough money, Simonides decided to talk up the mules and he wrote, Hail, daughters of storm-footed steeds. Simonides would have made a good spin doctor. The only leisure interest to which Aristotle devoted serious philosophical thought was dramatic literature. And that's the central topic of his poetics. Now, it's remarkable he should have done this because his teacher Plato had objected so strongly to the Mimetic arts that they're banned from his city-state in the Republic. Why would Aristotle spend so much time thinking about the fictional stories enacted in the popular theatre? And the only explanation is that he was personally convinced that such entertainment had the potential massively to enhance the emotional and moral life of both individual spectators and the community as a whole. Aristotle was the first philosopher to argue that the arts could be wonderfully educative. He argued that the producers of drama and music in a democracy hold such great responsibility they should be publicly appointed officials and of secondary importance only to priests. The arts in general and tragedy in particular allow us, he says, to think deeply about difficult subjects such as death while experiencing pleasure and emotional responses that are beneficial for the spectator's moral lives and psyche. That's the idea of catharsis, meaning this type of beneficial process. So in conclusion, Aristotle's afterlife. His status as great thinker is indisputable. His works lay at the heart of the work of the philosophical schools in later antiquity from the 6th to the 12th century CE, although in Western Europe most of his writings were inaccessible, he was studied extensively both in Byzantine philosophy and the Arabic intellectual tradition. In the early 11th century, he was read avidly by the Persian peripatetic philosopher, polymath and medic Ibn Sina, known in the West as Avicenna. In the 12th century, the way Aristotle was received radically affected not only how Christians, but also Jews and Muslims saw the relationship between faith and reason. That was when the great Aristotelian Averroes, Ibn Rashid, was writing his commentaries in Andalusia. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century tried to fuse Aristotelian philosophy with the principles of Christianity. Dante sees Aristotle sitting there in charge of all the other great world thinkers in the afterlife. He's the Maestro de Calogistano, the master of those who know. He was central to Renaissance thinking and early modern science, although falling somewhat out of favour 
until the 20th century. But modern philosophers, including Alistair MacIntyre and Philippa Foote, rehabilitated virtue ethics. While some of Aristotle's economic and biological thought is increasingly being seen as a productive basis for green and environmentalist philosophy. Truly, he deserves Dante's title of master of those who know.